We're going to be looking at Hannah's prayer this morning and the verses that follow. I'd like to read uh, part of it for us as we begin. First chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hired themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ashy. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words of Scripture today that speak of a deep faith, that Hannah and her husband and Samuel had, we stand amazed by that considering the time in which they lived. It is an encouragement to us too, Lord, that when we see things in our world moving away from you, that you are still at work and you still have your people and you still can empower us to grow in a deep faith with you. Would you do that today? We ask it in your name. A number of years ago, when I was uh, growing up on the farm, there was a summer when my dad wanted us to put up some steel grain bins. And uh, we needed those for storage of the crop. And since we had never built something like this before, dad uh, contacted the local elevator that was selling these and asked if they would send out a crew to put up the first one and kind of show us how to do it. And then we would uh, go from there and build the rest of them. The one thing I noticed that summer as I watched this particular crew come out to work on our farm was that there was one man who really stood out from the rest in terms of his work ethic. And this guy obviously knew what he was doing. He was very efficient in his work, and he went about it well. And when they took the coffee breaks, you know, he didn't stretch those out forever or just sit around telling stories and talking like a lot of the other guys were. In fact, it seemed this disparity. Here was this one guy working really hard, and a lot of the other guys were just kind of kicking back, almost watching him go about his work. And it was so noticeable to me that I talked to my parents about it afterwards. I said, what do you think was going on there? And uh, what was happening? And my parents really commented. They knew this individual, and they said that it really was a matter of character and integrity. Here was a man who wanted to give an honest day's work for the company that he was working for and do
do that well. In fact, if they had had six guys like him, they probably wouldn't have needed six guys to do the work. It was so noticeably different. Well, the Bible calls us to live differently too. To live in such a way that others can see the character of Jesus Christ in us. In the book of Philippians, for example, Paul wrote, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He said, do everything without complaining or arguing. I heard one mom say that's, that's her favorite verse. Do everything without complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And so here Paul is exhorting us to literally shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. How do we do that? Well, it's a reflection of our character, our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done in our life that changes the way we live and go about our work. We are to be people of faith in a time or in an age of corruption. And we see that modeled in the life of Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel. And the question really is, you know, how do we do that? How do we live for Christ, you know, if you're a student... How do you live for Christ when others in your school are not doing that? Or how do you live for Christ at work if your workplace is hostile to Christianity? Or how do you live for Christ in your family if the rest of your family does not know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and you are the first to come to know Him? What does God want us to do? Where do we start? Well, I believe the place that we start is in our relationship with God. And we are to worship God with all our heart, just like Hannah did here. We must put God first in our life. That's the starting point where we come and we surrender our life to Him. And what we see here in this passage that I read for you is that Hannah's faith was rooted in her knowledge of God. I mean, this is a rich prayer. It is called a prayer in the New International Version. Some of your versions call it a song. Uh, it really is a song or a hymn. Uh, it may have even been a song that she had learned as a child and she applied it to her situation here. It might be something she learned and then adapted. And the reason we say that is that it sounds like a song of victory. It sounds like something that Israel may have sang when God had delivered them from their foes. Because you have these words in here like, my, bow, my mouth boasts over my enemies. Well, was Penina really her enemy, this rival wife? I don't know. And in the same way, when it talks in verse 4 about the bows of the warriors are broken, you know, I don't think Hannah and Penina were drawing bows and shooting arrows at each other physically, but there is this song, these words that reflect this kind of victory, triumph. And Hannah may have taken that and applied it to her situation, just like sometimes we have learned a hymn or a chorus. And when we're going through a trial, it comes back to mind. And we take those words and we sing them, and they become our prayer to God for what He is doing in our life. This prayer would normally have been sung just like the Psalms. 
uh, Cliff Barrows, who led the worship at the Billy Graham Crusades for years, said in his quiet time, he used to actually sing the Psalms. He would take a melody and he would put the words to that melody and he would sing it back to the Lord to kind of hear it. I, I tried that with this uh, song, this prayer in my own devotional time, but I, I'll spare you my attempt here. But it was kind of interesting to do that, to sing this to the Lord. And just take a melody and sing the words and do that and to hear it in a little bit different way. Now let me share some observations on this prayer of Hannah. Hannah rejoiced in the Lord more than she did in Samuel. And she loved Samuel. Samuel was this gift, this child that was born, the answer to her prayers. But she rejoiced more in the God who gave her Samuel than she did in her son. And I think about that with the blessings that God gives to us too. Our joy is to be in God. His goodness, His favor, His blessings that He has showered upon us in so many different ways. And not to get those two mixed up where we rejoice more in the gift than we do the giver. And Hannah believed that God was this God of power, that God was a God who delivers. He is a God who saves. When it says that my horn is lifted up, that was a figure of speech that they used in the same way that, like if you think of a mighty uh, stag or an elk with this magnificent rack that they have, when they stand and they hold their head up in triumph and you see those horns lifted up high, that's the image here. That God had lifted her up from being so downcast and discouraged by not being able to have a son that when this answer to prayer came, her head was lifted up and she rejoiced in God. She believed that God is holy. There is no one like Him who is perfect, pure, who is righteous in all of His dealings. She believed that God is powerful, that He is a God who could deliver her from her trials. He is our rock, our refuge. She uses all of these terms to describe God here. She believed that God is a God who reverses the fortunes of the weak and the strong. And you see those couplets that are there. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. She believed that God is a God who can even raise the dead. He can give life to those who have passed away, who have gone before us. Here is a woman with this deep faith in God, and she is rejoicing in Him. Her prayer is even prophetic here in this way. This song that she sings unto the Lord, if you go to the end of verse 10, uh, she says and she prays, He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. That word anointed is the Messiah. And she prays for God's King, this King that He is going to send, this anointed one, the Messiah, who will be our Deliverer. And so here in her faith, she expresses God both in the present and for the future. God is a God who is in control of what's going on in our world. What a marvelous faith she had. And what a model that is even for us. How do we get a faith like hers? I mean, how do 
does our faith grow to be that kind of deep, rich faith that can stand the trials of life and hold on to God and see Him work in our world? We need to know our God. That's the bottom line. And the way that we do that is by spending time alone with Him in the Word and in prayer. I mean, we've got to think deeply about God. We need to get into His Word and study passages even like this that speak about His character, who He is. We should meditate on and memorize the Scripture, again, that focuses on God's character, His attributes, His love and power. We need to listen to hymns and choruses that are rich in theology, even like we sang this morning about a God of wonders or a God who reigns. It was said of the Methodists that they learned as much from Charles Wesley's hymns as they did from John Wesley's sermons. Charles Wesley's hymns put great theology to music, and it informed the generation, multiple generations of believers who sang and took to heart the words of those songs. That's how good music with good theology can do that for us. I would encourage you to also read good Christian books and biographies of saints who have gone before us. Read some of the classics of the Christian faith that have ministered to God's people throughout the centuries and fellowship with like-minded believers. All of those can help us get to know God. The Bible says that the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Daniel was talking about a time when people would be going through trials, difficulties, adversity, and he said that the people who know their God are going to be the kind of people who will display strength and take action. Boy, we need that, don't we? We need that in our world. We need those men and women of character when times are tough or our nation is facing a crisis or there are challenges in every area in which we look. We need men and women of God who will stand firm because they know the Lord. Secondly, how do we develop that kind of faith? Well, we need to learn to be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the little things. Jesus said in Luke 16.10 that whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. There's a principle there. If God can trust us with the little things and we are faithful in carrying out those responsibilities, then he can give us bigger things. But if we can't even handle the little stuff and do it well, and be responsible and, in a sense, be faithful to carry out the tasks that we are given, how can he give us bigger things? And that's why in ministry or in the Christian life, as we grow, we see that kind of progression. That's what Christian maturity is about. That as God gives us things that are a ministry or an opportunity to serve and we do that well, then he leads us and he gives us bigger assignments, bigger tasks, greater responsibility. And he is there to empower us each step of the way. We see that contrast here in 1 Samuel. Let me read verses 12 to 26 for us. It says that Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. 
he would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. Sort of a random thrust was supposed to bring up what they would need. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Well, let the fat be burned up first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy wearing a linen ephah. And each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. And then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how he slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Notice the huge contrast between these individuals. Eli's sons were wicked men. Literally, they were sons of Belial, or sons of the devil, in terms of how they were acting. It's interesting that Eli, just the chapter before, had thought Hannah was a wicked woman. Same term, a woman of Belial. That's how far off his spiritual discernment was, and how low things had gotten in Israel. But his sons were wicked men who treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Rather than accept the portion that was to be allotted to the priests, they wanted more. And they not only wanted this meat that was boiled, they even wanted meat before it was boiled. They wanted raw meat to take for themselves and cook as they pleased, things like that. And they sent their servants to get it, and if the people would not comply, they would take it by force. I mean, they were just thugs here in terms of how they were treating God's people in the temple. You see, the reason this was so significant that they would not even burn the fat portions, in the law of Moses, the fat portions belonged to God. They were to be burned on the altar because fat yields smoke, and smoke is an incense that rises up to God. It is a symbol of the prayers of God's people, so these offerings were to be brought, they were to be burnt on the altar, the smoke would rise toward God, and God was pleased with that. And what they were doing by taking this meat was they were literally robbing God. They were also guilty of sexual immorality. 
They slept with the women who worked at the entrance of the temple. Who were these women? Why were they there? You know, we're not 100% certain of all that was going on at this time. We do know that the Canaanites practiced temple prostitution. And had Israel descended now so low that there were women working as temple prostitutes there at Shiloh? Or were these women who were working in terms of the care of the temple in some other way? It was a sad state. And what these men were doing was an abomination to God. And then thirdly, they would not listen to their father's rebuke. And you have this note here in verse 25 that it had come to this point where it was now the Lord's will to put them to death. That is a sobering statement. That is a verse that we do not like to hear. But their sin had gone so far, it had gone on for so long, and it was so bad without repentance that now God's judgment would come. They had hardened their heart, and now God had hardened theirs. That is sobering indeed. To think that individuals can come to a point where they are so sad in their sin that there is no hope of salvation. The bottom line is this. They did not know God. In contrast to Hannah, who did know her God, they did not. In verse 12, where this passage began, it says that they were wicked men and they had no regard for the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew there says that they did not know the Lord. And that word know in Hebrew is significant. To know the Lord is more than just an intellectual knowledge. It's not just a recognition that there is a God or that I know something about Him. To know the Lord is a word that expresses that kind of intimacy, a heart relationship. To know the Lord is to enter into fellowship with God and to acknowledge His claim on our life. He is God and we are to be His children. We are to live according to His Word and serve Him. And we're to do that with all of our heart. He deserves nothing less than our surrender to Him. We use the word know in that way in our expressions too. When we ask the question, do they know the Lord? I mean, every time a, a prayer request comes up where someone is dying, I know that that's kind of the first thing we think about. Do they know the Lord? Do they know the Lord? Do they have that hope beyond this life? Are they going to go to be with Jesus? Because we are so concerned that people know Christ and have come into that personal relationship with Him. And what is equally sobering in this passage as the hardening of the hearts of Eli's sons is the fact that it is possible to be around religious things all our life and still not know God. It is possible for people to go to church all their life. It's possible for people to go through the rituals of religious worship and be a part of an organization or say, yeah, that's my church or that, that's where I go, and yet not know God. That is sobering. I think of a pastor, Don Schooler. Don Schooler, who was a pastor in... Canada, and he said this about his life. He said, in my first two churches, I preached all that I knew. I preached honesty, I preached faith, not knowing what it meant, 
I preach good habits, church attendance, honor, a continual exhortation to be good, be a good person. I talked about the fruits without knowing the root. And enthusiasm carried me in those days, enthusiasm and youth, but they proved to not be enough. And he came after serving in two churches in his ministry to this point where he was just feeling dry and empty. His marriage was difficult. He said, my wife believed one thing, I believed another. Where do we turn? They turned to the scriptures. They got into a study of the scriptures with some other couples that began to focus on Jesus and what does he say to us. And he said, as we spent that time in God's word, the light finally broke upon me. And I wept. I wept like a child calling out to my wife that I have missed it. I have utterly missed it. All these years I have preached only ethics, social and personal, but not the gospel. The gospel was the living Christ who has come to dwell in me. He came to that point of surrender to Jesus Christ, understanding that we can't live this Christian life in our strength, that it's Jesus who died for us. And when we yield our life to him and he comes in, he forgives us, he cleanses us, and we are born again by the Spirit of God. It's coming to a point of surrender. You know, when we look back on these verses in contrast, you see this account of Samuel. But Samuel, the scripture says in verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. This boy, this young boy was ministering. He wore the linen ephod, which was the garment of a priest. And it says about him that his mother every year would make him a new robe when she went up once a year and she'd make him this little robe which was the outer garment, you know, that he'd wear. And you can imagine she's making it with room to grow for a year so it's kind of big at first, you know, and he's walking around this little pint-sized priest, if you will, you know. And I just I had this picture in my mind like that. But he's faithful. He's loving God. He's in the Word. He's being faithful to his parents. He knows why he's there. He's a servant of the Lord. And the scripture said that Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And he grew in favor with God and men. You hear the echo of those words in Luke 2.52 when it talks about Jesus who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Here's Samuel, this boy before the Lord. What an encouragement that is to our children even. As a young child, you can come into that deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are precious years. And when God's Word becomes a part of your life and you just take that in and you soak in it and you come to know God, your faith is going to grow. And when you have parents who love you and point you to Christ and encourage you, you stand in a sense on their shoulders and God uses that to prepare you for what is going to come. Do you know the Lord in that deep, personal way? Have you surrendered your life to Him where He is everything to you? How do we develop the kind of faith that Hannah had or Elkanah or Samuel? That's how it starts. We give Him ourselves. We worship Him. We learn to be faithful in the small things. And the blessing is this, that God will reward you 
if you do that. In the last section in chapter 2, in verses 22 to 36, we see kind of the outcome of this situation. It says, Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore the Lord... The God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Let us stop there. Do you remember Hannah's prayer? In verse 3 of her prayer, she said this, that the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. God sees everything, He knows everything, and He is a God of judgment. And one day those who have been faithful will be rewarded, and those who have scorned Him will be disdained. And God's judgment was pronounced here in these verses. Eli's sin is revealed. Eli had scorned his privilege as a priest. He was part of the line of Aaron, given this great privilege to serve in the temple, to go up to the altar, to intercede for the people, to wear the ephod, to instruct the people of God. And Eli had scorned God's sacrifices. And he had honored his sons more than God by failing to remove them from the priesthood when they were being unfaithful to the Lord. And Eli's judgment is pronounced that his line would be cut off, not Aaron's line, but Eli's line. The line would continue under the kings through a man named Zadok and later through Jesus Christ. His descendants, Eli's descendants, would be killed by Saul and Abiathar who survived would be removed from his office by Solomon. All of these things would be fulfilled. Eli would see distress in God's dwelling when the ark was captured and Shiloh was destroyed. And the immediate sign that all of these things were going to happen was this, that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die on the same day. And so often in prophecy there was given this near and distant prediction of what was going to come, and the near sign was a promise or uh, a way of saying that the distant prophecy was also going to come to pass. God would raise up another priest to take his place. The key verse in this passage is verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. God sees and he rewards those who are faithful. Let me conclude with this story. In 1981, there was a movie made that talked about the life of Eric Little, and it was called Chariots of Fire. And many of you saw that at that time. It's been a number of years, so I bet... There are those in our church who probably have never seen this particular movie. But Eric Little was born to missionary parents in China. That was the year 1902. 
He entered Edinburgh University in Scotland, his homeland, in 1920. Uh, he was preparing for ministry. He felt God's call in that way, but he was also a gifted athlete. He could run like the wind. And he competed in the 1924 Olympics for England in Paris. His best events were the 100 and 200 meters, but as that movie showed, when Eric found out that the 100-meter event was going to be held on a Sunday, he refused to run. He would not run on the Lord's Day. It was a matter of conviction for him. And even though pressured to change his mind on that, some in the paper were hostile toward him, some thought of him almost as a traitor to his country, some thought he was legalistic, he held to his conviction. And what's interesting in that Olympics is that he would win two medals, but not in the races that everyone thought he would. His best events were the 100 and 200 meters. In the 200 meters, he would win a bronze medal. And the other event in which he would run would be the 400 meters. It was not an event that he had trained for. But an individual on his team came to him and was willing to give up his place so that Eric might run and have another opportunity at a gold medal. And Eric agreed and he drew the outside lane in that race, which means he starts the farthest ahead and he would not be able to see those that were running behind him. It was the most difficult spot to be in, especially for a novice running that race. And so he ran the race, as he normally did, all out full out. In the first 200 meters, he ran so fast that he was far ahead of everyone else and he was just a fraction of a second off of the world record pace. No one thought he could continue to run at that speed. And they thought he would collapse and the others would pass him down the stretch. But as the margin began to narrow and he's running toward the finish line, it was somehow that he found another burst of energy. And in his unusual, unorthodox style, his head went back. His arms were kind of flailing as he ran. That's how he ran. And he found the strength to run to the finish line. He won in world record time, pulling away from the pack. It was said of Eric Little that two words described his life. Absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. He ran the way that he lived. He lived his life fully devoted to God, and when he ran, he ran for his glory. On that day when he ran that race in the 400 event, his trainer sent him this message, and it was given to him just before the race. It said in the good book, it says, those who honor me, I will honor. May that be said of us as well. May we be the kind of people who choose to honor Christ in our work, who choose to honor Christ in our homes, who choose to honor Christ in our schools, and who choose to honor Christ in the way that we live our life every single day. Let's pray. Father, would you help us for your glory to run the race well. I like those words of absolute surrender. Father, may we come to that point where we have no fear, no reservation about trusting you, but we have put our life wholly in your hands because you are wise and you are good and you 
love us and you have a plan and a purpose for our life. Help us to trust you and to give you everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen. And now to him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.